Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a blessing to see you. For those who don't know me, I'm Ephraim and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it's a blessing to have you with us, if that is the case and you don't know me. Always a good thing. Um, thank the Lord for his grace, um, being able to be here. I was um, kind of wiped out with flu um, over the last few days. And um, it's funny the things that the Lord teaches you whilst you're just sitting down, really with nothing else to do apart from rest. And um, so it's been, it's been a, a very fruitful period of ill health. <laughs> God uses it for his glory in so many ways. And um, so, yeah, it's good to be here and to um, turn our attention to the Word of God again today as we um, look to him for his grace and his mercy. Now, one of the things being laid up, definitely done, was just reminded me of my mortality. Um, I, I text the guys for community group. All right, so it was man flu, but what? <laughs> I was wiped out, okay? And I'm a man. So if you were to call it man flu, that's all right. And it reminded me of my mortality. <laughs> and, um, and it, you know, it's true, actually, because I know that um, my wife has probably been m- much worse ill and continued to achieve much more whilst in that state <laughs> than whilst I was just kind of laid there. <laughs> feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> but you know, that's our prerogative as men, right? To, to get man flu. <laughs> and so um, whilst laid up with man flu, <laughs> being reminded of my mortality, um, <laughs> oh dear, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 it caused me to um, have to really Think about God's mercy and his grace. And even beyond that, just considering the fact that, albeit man flu, um, what if it were to be something more serious? What if it to be, were to be something terminal even? Um, would I really have been good to go? Are you really good to go? And often we can find ourselves in a place where we have a tendency to feel as though we're much better prepared for things in life than we really are. We can feel as though, you know, okay, we've got to make this journey. And again, maybe this is a man thing. We kind of think we know where we're going. And we get in the car and we drive in the right direction. But then when it comes to the finer details, we find that we're going around one-way systems and no entries because we haven't looked properly and we're not as well prepared as we ought to be. Um, Maybe you've experienced like myself this week, walking into a shop, getting ready to order and feeling like, yeah, okay, I know what I've come in here for, no problem. And you tap and you reach for your card and it's not there. And you felt very well prepared until that moment and you realized that you weren't. And so Jesus, um, as we look to the scripture in Luke 16, has something to say about being, being prepared, something to say about being good to go. And um, it will have particular relevance as we consider um, Today is being regarded as Palm Sunday, um, the week before Easter, the final days of Christ's life before his brutal torture, and actually recognizing that there's much for us to learn as we consider the words of Jesus in relation to us being good to go, and also how we're able to help others be good to go. There's a double challenge and a double consideration there. So let's pray as we prepare to look at Luke 16. 
Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy and your grace toward us, that we're able to be here and consider your word again, anew, afresh, that we're able to look to you with an endeavor to meet with you that we might be changed by you. Speak to our hearts, Lord, we pray. Have your way, Lord. May we consider what it means to be good to God and how we are able and also able to help others to be so. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Luke 16, we see from verse 1 that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He also said to the disciples, and so right now he's going to share a parable, a parable that's known as the unjust steward or the the, the unrighteous manager or the dishonest manager in some translations. And as he shares this parable, his endeavor is to help prepare his disciples those who have put their faith in him and submitted to follow him as Lord to help prepare them to be good to go. And he does so in a very, not just challenging, but almost confusing way. And so as we listen to the parable, I'm sure if it's one you're familiar with, you'll be able to say amen. I can see how this is a little confusing and, um, and if not challenging. Um, and so... Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am, what? Removed from management, people may receive who? Me into their houses. So this manager, just to pause there, is in a situation where he's been found out, he's been rumbled, he's been less than honest, he's been less than faithful, his, his boss has found him out and given him his cards, P45. No, um, no, no long discussion, no long debate. Okay, here's your notice. And this manager has realized that he's going to be out of a job And I'm sure that at some point or another, um, all of us who are of working age have experienced that feeling of what it is to be out of a job or facing a job loss at the very least. Recognizing that to be a very um, vulnerable and insecure place to be in when you appreciate that your source of income has dried up. Your source of income has been taken away from you and your future is now in jeopardy. And so we're able to appreciate the concern that the manager has for his future because this is the primary issue. The manager's future is in question. To the extent that he is now trying to work out, how can I secure a healthy future? And so, in verse 5, he summons his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So it's gone from a hundred measures to 50. Then he said to another, verse 7, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So again, he's discounted 
the outstanding debt. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So the master, the boss of the manager, commended the manager's shrewdness. The boss of the dishonest manager commended his shrewdness. Note that. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. This is quite a telling statement coming from the words of Jesus. Basically, Jesus is presenting to us the fact that this dishonest manager, in an earthly sense, was more shrewd or acted more wisely regarding regarding his temporary future than the children of light with regards to their eternal future. Now, one of the things that makes this parable so confusing is the fact that Jesus is holding up someone who's dishonest as a good example. Would you not agree? That kind, you're kind of thinking, so what is Jesus saying? That we should go and, you know, fiddle the tax credits. Or we should go and, you know, um, cook the books at work and put in more hours than... In, is this what Jesus is suggesting? Is this why Jesus is holding up someone dishonest as a good example? Absolutely not. You see, this is an exercise in compare and contrast. This is Jesus holding up somebody as an example within their context as a comparison and yet a contrasting comparison for what the children of light ought to be in the positive sense. This person with negative motives and negative methods demonstrated a a wise principle. And if we extract that principle from that context and apply it in a positive way with positive motives, it becomes a good principle. And so this is what Jesus is doing. It's almost as if some of you will remember um, back in the day with old school cameras when you used to have film and you used to take pictures, and after you've taken your pictures with your film, you know, your Kodak, clunk, clunk, and wind it on, and then you get your pictures back, and you get negatives with the pictures. And the negatives are a strip of plastic film, if you like, and they, they contain a reverse image, uh, a negative image of the actual picture. Now, I'm going to great lengths because I know we've got quite a few young people here and this is going to be a myth to you. You don't really understand what I'm talking about. But the idea, the idea of the negative, apart from you trendy young people, because you all have like Kodak, shake it, shake it, cameras now, right? Back in fashion. The idea of the negative was that from the negative, if you wanted to get reprints done, you would be able to get a better quality reprint done having gone through the negative images. Now, the thing about the negative images was sometimes they were very hard to kind of work out what was going on because they were a literal reverse in terms of light and dark. They were a reverse of the picture. So everything that was white or light in the original picture would be dark on the negative, and everything that's dark in the original picture would be light on the negative. So you're looking at a reversed image. Now, that might be hard for you if you're unfamiliar with negatives to picture. And um, so just ask someone in your family, circle of friends, whatever, if they've got any old negatives lying around and it would make more sense. But what you were able to do is, having looked at that, discerned, okay, what is the image that I want to see once this negative has been reversed? This is what we see Jesus doing, presenting here. 
a negative picture which is good once reversed to a positive. So, the the manager gave careful attention to his temporary future and was more shrewd, which is quite an indictment, more shrewd than the children of light. When we consider our Christian experience, if we're honest, I'm sure that we can all say there are so many ways in which we still see this saying to be true today. We still see this saying to be true today. When we look at the extents that people will go to for money, for fame, for power, for popularity, for business market share, for whatever the motive, the extent that people go to in the world, in life, in a general sense, is often so much further then we are prepared to go for the name of Christ. Maybe it's just me that sees that. But when we look at, for example, product development, so many of us have products. We've bought products, maybe an electronic gadget, um, something in the home, a domestic item, and within six months, we feel discontented because it's outdated. And there is now something better available. That phone that we just upgraded to, within six months, there's a new model out and we're on a 24-month contract. And we ain't happy. It seems that the path of progress is relentless in life. Can the same be said about the church and our pursuit of God's glory to be displayed in every facet of life? Do we apply ourselves with such dedication and vision and commitment to the things of God in such a way that it is progressive and increasingly effective? Now, we may look around and see certain aspects of you know, the Christian world, and we think, okay, yeah, we can see aspects of progress there. We can see real, um, you know, people on the, on the cutting edge in terms of moving things forward. But let's not just think in the general sense. What about your life? What about you and where you're at? You see, this statement isn't just a general statement like the royal we and they and as we heard in the announcements. But this is a personal statement to each one of us. This is a personal challenge to each one of us. Verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. How do you fare in the face of that statement? You're a son of light today. You're a child of God. To what extent do you apply yourself? To what extent are you even committed to apply yourself in a way that would see God's kingdom progressively revealed in your life more and more and more with intentionality and purpose? Challenging question. And yet one that, as we'll see, Jesus puts squarely at the feet of his disciples in relation to whether or not they are good to go. You see, this is with an eternal perspective in mind. This is Jesus challenging us to invest in the eternal kingdom the kingdom that has no end. Verse 9, And I tell you, 
make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So here's something practical that we're able to do in response to the challenge that Jesus puts before us. But reading it, it doesn't make, again, it's one of them kind of confusing statements. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So, mm, unrighteous wealth, drug money, Mm. Um, maybe I should invest my money in some dodgy, unscrupulous regimes around the world where I'm going to get some high returns. No, that's not what the Lord's saying. Although he is speaking about what we do with our money. You see, Jesus speaks here of unrighteous wealth as being that which people put their trust in. That which people put their confidence in, as opposed to God. In 1 Timothy 6, we're told that people love money. And in fact, the love of money is a root of all evil. And so Jesus is saying, look, play fool to catch wise, as it were. Use the wealth that God has given you to build eternal relationships. Notice how this verse is phrased. Notice specifically how it's stated. Make friends for yourselves, that's relational, that's people, by means of unrighteous wealth. So wealth is a tool by which you will make friends, you will develop relationships, so that when it fails, it being the unrighteous wealth fails, they, the people you've made relationship with, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So it's simple. Using our material things to invest in the forwarding of God's kingdom by which people are able to come into relationship with him and receive eternal life. Probably something that we wouldn't really think about when being challenged, are you good to go? It's probably not the first thing that would come to mind. So, okay, Jesus is coming soon. My life is maybe soon to end. And in terms of priorities and things I need to do, okay, let me put at the top there, um, use my money, use my material wealth for the kingdom's sake. I'm pretty certain that that wasn't at the disciples, the top of their list, just as much as it wouldn't be at the top of our list. But Jesus here is challenging short-sighted living with shallow values. Because when we give ourselves to invest in the things of this life only, that's a shallow investment. Because they're going to fail. You notice in that verse it says, when it fails. It doesn't say if. At a funeral the other day, and um, restated a quote that we've stated many times. It was at the, the death of a 20-year-old. And to some extent, it, it was clear that um, he was of a generation and amongst peers who highly esteemed the acquiring of money. They were about the papers. Getting that money. And the reality is that money for many has become their idol. Money has become their God. And so as we stood at the funeral, you know, I reminded people, I said, look, you know, Steve Jobs recently died. And he was one of the richest men in the world. 
And I asked the question, does anybody know how much he left when he died? Anybody know how much Steve Jobs left when he died? Thank you. He left all of it. (laughs) It really doesn't matter, the, the figures, the zeros. He left it all. He could take none of it with him. And that was legal money. I mean, no, seriously, we laugh. I mean, people get caught with criminal proceeds and that money is repatriated. That money is, is, is confiscated from them and they're never able to, to gain a benefit of that. I saw an article about a Colombian drug lord and he had billions, I mean, in, in $100 bills just stacked, probably the, the size of this stage, at least, at least chest high. And he had rare animals, like pumas and so on in his home and gold-plated guns and all this armory and he got caught and it's all gone. I mean, he's not even dead yet. He actually lives to see its demise. Which I think that's worse. Money will fail. Idols always do. God never fails. And so the Lord challenges us to invest in the kingdom in order that it might be of eternal worth. Jesus goes on to say, verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. We serve an eternal God who sits outside of time and space and Size and scale means nothing to him because he is infinite. Small, large, what's large to an infinite God? (laughs) It's like hammer, you can't touch this. It's like he's infinite. You know, just got the Lord doing the hammer dance with the hammer pants on. No, 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 no. Thank you, Linda. Bring me back, bring me back. But God is an infinite God. So when God sees our faithfulness in little, he sees it as much. We may not think that we have much to invest. But God says, what are you doing with what you have? Because even the little that you have, that's little in your sight, is much in mine. Use it wisely. Use it faithfully. Verse 11, if you then have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The joyous expectation of the Christian is that one day we will rule and reign with Jesus. We will rule and reign alongside him. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, in fact, that we will judge angels. And so there will come that point in time when, however it works, the details are a little cloudy at this stage. But, you know, that's just how it is, how the Lord's chosen to reveal it. We see through a glass dimly. But, you know, there may be that occasion when, okay, Jesus is now here and he's ready to assign roles and responsibilities and positions and so on and you know one and two of us from among us here not including myself you know might get the Hawaii assignment the Bahamas assignment and you know everybody's like oh yeah that will be you know it wouldn't make no difference then because we'll have glorified bodies and, and climate and temperature will have no effect upon us whatsoever Praise be to God. And so, but the reality is that we will be assigned roles and responsibilities within the kingdom, even to the point where we'll be judging angels, the Bible says. And so, there is expectation beyond this world, beyond this life, beyond the now, of bigger things to come. And what we do now as believers has complete impact upon that. Are you being faithful? Will you be entrusted with true riches? To what extent? 
Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Who will give you that which is your own? Faithfulness. The Lord's not even looking for how successful we are. How much of a return we yield on the investment. Because actually, that's not our responsibility. It's the Lord that adds the increase. But are we handling faithfully that which the Lord has given us? And then Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. It is not possible. If we live our lives with greater concern for our financial well-being, well-being than we do for God's will, we are being unfaithful to God. We are in a place of serving finance over the Lord. You cannot. This is a statement that is, is regarded as what they would call mutually exclusive. Meaning, it can't happen. The two are so opposed and so at odds with one another that actually it's impossible for us to serve God and money. <coughs> Sorry. Now, Jesus made this statement and it obviously had impact because in addition to the disciples who were his followers, there were the Pharisees listening in, verse 14. And as the Pharisees listened in, who were told were lovers of money, their response exposed their hearts. In verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they rejoiced in him. Is that what it said? And they ridiculed him. Now, as I was reading over this, and I mean, this is one of my favorite parables in the scripture and I've read it a lot of times and even as I was reading it in preparation, I was, I was thinking to myself, there's something wrong with that statement. And it was actually subconsciously, every time I've read it, I've realized that it's troubled me. And yet, I've never really tried to think about exactly what is wrong with that statement. There's lots of things wrong with that statement, I guess. But one of the things that actually just really bothers me is the fact that they would try and ridicule Jesus. And you're like, you guys really actually didn't have a clue. You're trying to ridicule God. Talking about setting themselves up above God. So these Pharisees who were re religious leaders in their time were noted and recognized as being lovers of money. This was one of their chief characteristics. They were lovers of money. Now these are religious leaders, right? These are the ones who are supposed to be leading the people in the, in the pursuit of God in the worship of God, and yet they were lovers of money. And herein we see something of maybe a common problem today in terms of the mindset of these individuals. You see, these Pharisees were esteemed as religious leaders and yet were known to be lovers of money, and that was fine. That was normal in their day. It is said, and especially in light of these verses here, that the Pharisees had a view that the more blessed and highly favored you were materially, the more it reflected your spiritual 
blessing and favor before God. (coughs) Some of us have encountered that view today that spiritual blessings is defined by material wealth. And if you have a big house and a big car and if you have a good job and if you have X amount of changes of, of, of silk suits for men and so on and the list goes on, that basically is a show of how spiritually blessed and favored you are. And this is why the Pharisees took to ridiculing Christ. And yet Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Wowzers. What is esteemed, what is valued, what is respected, what is rated among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So you have robes that are seamless made from one piece of purple linen. And you have gold and silver in your houses for your utensils and the list goes on and these things are means by which you justify yourself before people self-justification self-justification look at me I'm righteous look at my wealth Look how well-to-do I am. Hmm. And yet God says that is an abomination in his sight. And then he turns their attention to the law. As if he hadn't cut to the heart deep enough, he then goes on. The law and the prophets, verse 16, were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Why would Jesus switch his attention to the law in view of their greedy, as my grand would say, gravelicious? That's just... um. Wanty, wanty, grabby, grabby kind of mentality. Why would he switch to making an issue of the law? Even to the point now of verse 18 bringing up divorce, which seems so random in the context. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus brings application of the law to his hearers. Why? Because it's conviction that results in conversion. It's conviction of the heart. It's conviction of the soul that results in conversion. Cash, wealth, blessings. You know what? I heard uh, uh, somebody criticizing the, those of the prosperity gospel movement. And they said, you know, I go to these churches and they're just preaching to me legitimized greed. They're preaching to me about no duration like finite, this is unending torment. And it's such that as difficult and as hard as it may be, we need to consider the reality 
of hellish torment because I think they say it's uh, like 150,000 people per minute die on the face of the planet right across the globe. Are they good to go? Are we good to go? Are our families good to go? In the Pharisees' mind, this rich man was good to go. Jesus exposed that he wasn't. Verse 24. And he called out, Father Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Jesus' point in telling this, this parable wasn't to explain how to be saved. But this is the consequences of those who are and those who aren't. Some would look at this and say, okay, well, that means you have to be poor and lowly. And if you're poor and lowly and suffering in life, then you're, you're guaranteed to be saved. That's not what this is teaching. It's just saying that they were two individuals. One was rich and wasn't saved, and the other wasn't rich, was poor, suffering, but was saved. So this isn't a diagnostic as to how to get to heaven, how to get to paradise. So, he's crying out for help. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. That's what you live for. All the good that you live for, everything that you gave yourself for, you had it. You weren't thinking eternally. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. There's such a tremendous, tremendous word of comfort to us. Because the reality is that life can be brutal. Life can be tough. Life can be hard. And yet we are promised eternal comfort. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. It doesn't matter how life, how bad life is. How hard the marriage is. How, how much your boss hates you and you just can't take it. it, it how, how little funds you have. How, you know what? You are promised in Christ Jesus eternal comfort. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Verse 26. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It's too late to have compassion for someone in the grave. That compassion that we might desire to have for them, we need to have for them now. That preparation that is needed to help them be ready to go, to help them to be good to go, is needed now. How are we helping people to be good to go? Verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. So the rich man's not thinking of himself now. It's like, okay, there's no hope for me. Let's just like send Lazarus to where there's hope, to where people might hear him and 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 pay attention. Verse 28: For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let the brothers hear Moses and the prophets. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's quite a startling statement. Now, this is an interesting account because some would say it's a parable and some would say it's not. One of the reasons people say that it's not a parable is because unlike all of the other stories that Jesus told, all of the other parables that Jesus told, Jesus in this story mentions an individual by name. Lazarus. Was it a parable? Was it not? We can't be certain, but we know that the principles of truth remain true to this day as they come from the words of Jesus. And we see Jesus underlining something of great implication. Miracles don't result in conversion. Facts of knowledge don't result in conversion. But true conviction is what results in the conversion of the heart. We desire to see people saved. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection And we declare Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And we do so with confidence because we know that we have good reason to believe. We don't engage in a blind faith, as people say, as Christians. As C.S. Lewis once said, there is sufficient evidence concerning Christ to convince anyone who is willing to believe. There's sufficient evidence if someone's willing. But if someone is not willing, no amount of evidence is going to convince them. No amount of evidence is going to lead to their conversion. It's going to take something more than evidence. And Jesus says here that it is the knowledge of the law and the prophets, of Moses and the prophets, the law of God, In Psalm 119, David says, Your law, O Lord, is perfect, converting the soul. And as we endeavor to help prepare people to be good to go, we must not neglect to apply the law to the heart, to our own hearts and to the hearts of our loved ones. Because the reality is that no one is good to go. No one is good to go. And it actually takes for a person to understand that I am not good. It takes for a person to understand that before God, in light of his law, I am guilty and deserving of sin. But most people, if not all people, don't feel that way. Most people feel as though, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And we can be given, like the Pharisees, to self-justification. You see, I'm not a pedophile or a rapist. I'm I'm not a, a, a murderer or a serial thief. I mean, I I make mistakes, right? Because everyone makes mistakes, right? Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul giving consideration to the 
the power and the importance of the law. He says this. From verse 9. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. I mean, they have the law and the prophets, right? Are they better than anyone else? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so as Jesus confronted the religious leaders, he exposed their self-justification as he does to us all. Rich man dies and, I mean, living a full life Best of Judean healthcare and goes to hell to hate? No. Why not? <coughs> Why not? All have sinned. All are guilty. That includes you, that includes me. When God looks at your life, he sees, he sees guilt. Apart from Christ, he sees guilt. He sees sin that he must judge as a just God. Last week we heard about lust and adultery, fornication. And maybe that's not your portion, right? Covetousness. Got to have it. That greed that can motivate. <coughs> Sorry. How about lies and deceit? How about hatred? How about resentment and bitterness that has festered for years where there's been no unforgiveness? where there's been no forgiveness. So, who is good to go? No one. No one's good to go. And we need the law to help us appreciate that, that we might look to him who is good to go. To him who kept the law and was killed on our behalf. And having been killed on our behalf, was actually raised from the dead. Look at the goodness of God. So the rich man cries out, send Lazarus from the dead. Because they will hear Lazarus. And Jesus says, they've got the law and the prophets. They don't need Lazarus. They don't need Lazarus, but what happened? Jesus raised a man called Lazarus from the dead, right? Jesus raised dead Lazarus, dead for four days, read John 11. Raised him from the dead. 
that God might be glorified and people still didn't believe. Furthermore, not only did they want to kill Jesus for raising him from the dead, they wanted to kill Lazarus to try and make out it never happened. The wickedness of men's hearts. Wow. And these were the religious leaders who wanted God's will. And yet Jesus rose from the dead to affirm the fact that our debt was paid to those who believe. Paid in full. Set free. Completely acquitted. Free to go. And that in him we would experience newness of life. Look at the lavish goodness of God. That he would show us and expose us to ourselves. That he would expose us to our need for Christ. That he would provide more than sufficient evidence for us to believe in his son. Who was killed and raised on our behalf. What a tremendous God we serve. And so, as I ask the band to come and rejoin me. The goodness of God in sending the Savior to die for our sin. And to raise him on the third day for our justification. We needed the law of God. No amount of objectivity ultimately has the power of the subjective reality of our own hearts. And this is what the law deals with. When the law of God is applied to our hearts... When the law of God is applied to your heart, it ought to result in a a humble cry for help. Recognizing that that cry is only answered in Jesus Christ and by him alone. And if, like the Pharisees, we seek to trust in anything other than Christ alone, we are doomed for eternal torment. If you're trusting in your church attendance, if you're trusting in your family reputation and heritage, if you're trusting in your wealth as a a sign of great favor that God has given you, it means nothing before God. And so, as we help prepare others to be good to go in pointing them to Jesus, may our hearts, may your hearts be turned continually to Christ. Your vision having an eternal perspective, investing in eternal life with all that you are and all that you have. Shall we stand? Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. You gave us so much more than we needed. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us our depravity, our sin our guilt for revealing to us your faithful saviour who not only died in our place but was raised from the dead for our justification granting us infallible confidence that through faith in Jesus we live Christ is the end of the law as a means of righteousness thank you Jesus for keeping the law on our behalf 
thank you, Jesus, for ascending into heaven and making intercession for us. Thank you, Lord. We bless you and give you the honor and the praise. We submit our hearts to you, Lord, and ask that you'd have your way in and among us continually. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.